evening and welcome to our service this evening uh, in the Crescent. Make you very welcome, as David has said, if you're a visitor or a guest. Uh, make you even more welcome if you're a Liverpool supporter and congratulations on dragging yourselves out of your pit of despair and coming out this evening. And as David has said, we are continuing our series uh, in the feasts this evening. I don't know if you've ever made a promise to a three-year-old. Um, I, I imagine it's something equivalent to what making a blood oath is like. Um, and you may say, look, we're going to go to the park today. And woe betide you should you forget that. Because when it comes time for bedtime and we've got through the needing a drink and needing the toilet and all the usual procrastination, and you think that the light's about to go out, Daddy, you said we were going to the park today. And your heart just sinks. And you soon learn that lesson and you realize whenever you promise something, you have to deliver on it. And they soon realize that as well. And then whenever you take the turn in the car that leads towards the park, or even better, McDonald's, and they see the familiar path and they know where they're going, the joy just explodes. And we really do put a lot of stock in a promise and in seeing it fulfilled, both when we're the ones making it and we're the ones who have it made to us. And that's something we're going to come back to as we think uh, about uh, the, the Feast of Pentecost this evening. Now, Scott has already taken us through some of the key details of the Feast of Pentecost. Um, it's called the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. Um, for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to call it Pentecost this evening. Um, at some point, I will forget and call it Passover. That is just Sunday evening brain freeze. Uh, we're talking about Pentecost this evening. And let's, let's um, come to Leviticus chapter 23 initially and read those instructions um, that God gave to his people uh, about how the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, was to happen. So Leviticus chapter 23 and starting at verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old, as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You should leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So this is the Feast of Pentecost. And we've already thought a little bit about what it was, but as, as key in, in the Feast of 
weeks as you would gather from the name is not just what happened but when it happened the the feast of first fruits and the feast of pentecost came one after the other and the two of them were paired very tightly together in the calendar of of jewish life Um, one followed a very prescribed period of time after the other and that is critical and that is really important pentecost happened as the grain was ready to harvest Last week, David was talking to us about the Feast of First Fruits, and that happened whenever the, the green sheaves came out of the ground, and the seed broke the surface of the earth, and it was a sign that spring had come, and, and the grain was there to see, but it was green, and it was still not ready to harvest. But 50 days later, by the time the Feast of Pentecost had come, the sun had ripened and readied that grain, and it was time to take it in, to put the scythe to it, to gather it in, to thresh it, and, and to store the grain up, and to start to use it, um, as Scott has said, to, to live on and to thrive off. And so, first fruits, that, that feast that we thought about last week, if you like, there was the promise of the grain. They could see the green fields. And then at Pentecost, that promise comes good, that promise is fulfilled, the grain is harvested, and things come together. So, the next question then for us is, well, why? Why were they having the Feast of Pentecost? And as Scott has rightly said, it was a feast of thankfulness, of gratefulness to the Lord for giving them the grain harvest. And David took us through last week the idea of thankfulness in the Feast of first fruits, and gave us some very direct challenges about giving the Lord the first and the best in our own lives. And I'm not going to retread that ground this evening, but I would encourage you to go and listen to that if you weren't here last week. So, the Feast of Pentecost was a feast of thankfulness, of appreciation to the Lord for what He had given them. But the question is, was that all it was, or was there something else to it as well? The feasts, as we've thought, were a cycle that the, the, the people of God were to go through year after year. They followed each other, and one came after the other, and as years blended into years, they would become part of the rhythm of their life, part of the ordinary beat of social life, a way that God drew um, spiritual life into the ordinary and the everyday, and it would have framed their existence much in the way that probably for us Easter and summer holidays and Christmas provide a sort of a structure to the year that we depend on. And when, when the half-term holiday comes in a few weeks, we know that the full summer holiday is coming before too long, and we have these pillars in our year that give it structure. And I think that the tying of first fruits to Pentecost so tightly in time is trying to teach the people of God another lesson as well. And, and they would have started to associate as the years went on that when they celebrated the Feast of First Fruits, they knew that the Feast of Pentecost was on the horizon. When they saw the green sheaves in the field, they knew that the full harvest was coming. As sure as night followed day, one would follow the other. And so, at first fruits, they would celebrate the arrival of the green sheaves, but their minds would already be starting to look forward to Pentecost, to the joyful time that it was, to the day off work, to the religious observance, to the celebration of the harvest being over, to all of the joy and fulfillment and fullness that would come with it. So, it was building into the minds of the people this pattern 
We have first fruits, and then inevitably coming after it, we have Pentecost. A bit like that, we have, we have things like that in our own lives. When I grew up, um, we had Christmas decorations in our house, and they were all kept in one box. Um, some of them were miraculous. There was a foil thing that lay flat, and you picked it up, and it became 3D, and it was a wonder of human engineering. Um, it would last about 30 seconds in my house today between a dog and two daughters. But every year at the Greer house, this foil thing came out and was hung up, and the, the glass baubles were put on the tree. And nobody needed to tell me as a child, well, the, the, we're putting the decorations up because Christmas is coming, Nicholas. You knew as soon as you saw the decorations, Christmas was on the horizon. And my first draft of this, I was going to pretend that I was looking forward to seeing family and Christmas dinner. But of course, as a child, you were looking forward to the presents. And probably as an adult, you are as well. And we know whenever we see the trees start to appear and the decorations start to go up, that triggers in our mind the expectation that the full experience is coming, that Christmas is on its way. So it would have been for God's people. They would have celebrated first fruits and known the grain harvest is coming. God's goodness is on its way. The promise is going to be fulfilled. Pentecost is coming. And so the lesson of Pentecost for them was promise fulfilled, if you like. Harvest is promised at first fruits, and it's fulfilled at Pentecost. So that's the lesson that the people at the time would have been learning as the years passed. And that's very interesting for us, and hopefully helps us to understand something of the life of, of the people in the Old Testament as we read it. But the next question for us to ask ourselves this evening is, well, now that we know that and we sort of understand that, does it make sense of something for us in the New Testament? Does it, does it bring something together for us that perhaps was a bit mysterious before? Does it help us understand something? And I'm going to have us look at two times whenever understanding that first fruits Pentecost cycle, I think, brings life to something in the New Testament for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about uh, the Lord Jesus being raised from the dead and he's correcting a misunderstanding in the church at the time that nobody could be raised from the dead. Uh, and Paul says, well, if nobody can be raised from the dead, the Lord hasn't been raised from the dead, and this is all pointless, and we're all going to die and give up hope now. But he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul was linking the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the idea of first fruits. And so if the Lord's resurrection from the dead is first fruit, when we put our Old Testament hat on that we've just thought, the, the question that comes into our head is, well, if that was the first fruits, if the Lord's resurrection was the first fruits, where's the Pentecost? What's the Pentecost? What are we looking forward to? And so I want us to come to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts 2, we find ourselves at the very early days of the church. And we're, we're coming to the end of that interim period after the Lord had been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And those who had known him and followed him, fairly small numbers still at that stage, were gathering in small groups and, and really waiting to see what was going to happen next. Um, and it's into that setting that we break in in Acts chapter 2. So let's read that. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This moment at the, the, the literal feast of Pentecost was a seminal day in the history of the church, potentially the first day in the history of the church, because it was at that moment that the Holy Spirit came and dwelt within all of those who were followers of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit had been active in the world all through the Bible up to this point and enabling and encouraging and emboldening, but this was something totally new and totally different to anything that had happened before. The Spirit was coming to live, and the word is indwell, and it really is the word for it, to dwell within the person, to live within the person who was a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, and, And so, as a sign of that miraculous moment, they find that they are gifted with the ability to speak languages that they had never learned, and it is a witness to the miraculous event that has happened to those that are around them. And um, it is from that moment that the group of Christians who would still um, believe that we should be looking for those miraculous gifts would take their name. They're called Pentecostals, and they derive their name from the fact that this incredible thing happened at the Feast of Pentecost. And so what we realize is that the Lord Jesus is raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits. And so the harvest begins, the Pentecost begins on the day of Pentecost. And that harvest, that process of God gathering people to himself, is still going on. It's not a harvest of grain like it had been for all of those years. That was just a picture of what was coming. It's a harvest of people people who need to know and love and follow the Lord Jesus. And that harvest began on the day of Pentecost, but it is continuing up to today. And you might ask, well, when's that harvest going to finish? When's that going to end? Well, I can't tell you when it's going to end. I can tell you when it's not going to end before. If we go to the book of Revelation, there's a vivid picture of the end of all things. And John, when he's writing is looking at the the throne, and he says, he sees this. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we can tell you now that that harvest is not going to finish until at least there are people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue who have been gathered to the Lord Jesus. In fact, I can tell you the harvest is a long way from finished. The Joshua Project would rate about 41% of all people groups on earth today as unreached by the gospel. So we have a long way to go before there's going to be a crowd standing before God from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So the harvest began at Pentecost, and it goes on today. And the Lord talked about that when He was here on earth to His disciples. He said, the harvest is plentiful, plenty to be done. Another time He says, the fields are white under the harvest. But the Lord says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that there would be laborers sent to the harvest. And I think the challenge to us today as we listen to that is to think, how are we contributing to this harvest? The Lord has people in Belfast who need to be gathered to Him. The Lord has people in other countries who need to be gathered to Him. The Lord has people in groups of people and places which have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ who are at this moment lost. And so the challenge for us from Pentecost is to continue to pray for, to send, and to support those who are seeking to reach those people. This church is coming up on its 150th anniversary, and for all of those years it has had a strong care and emphasis on mission work and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ across the face of the earth. And so the challenge for us as those who are standing here holding the baton tonight is to keep going with that, to keep going with that. So Pentecost and Acts, we have the Lord's resurrection as the first fruits, and then we have the start of the harvest at that incredible day in Jerusalem. And as we're closing out that section, you might start to get a realization as well that these events in the early church weren't happening by accident. It didn't happen by chance. Pentecost, the, the true Pentecost happening on the day of Pentecost, that's no coincidence. That's a sign of a God who is guiding the events of history, who is taking us somewhere. There's a greater plan unfolding in the control of God. So that's how the first fruits Pentecost cycle helps bring understanding to Acts for us. I want us to go to Romans chapter 8 as well. I want to see how understanding that promise first fruits delivery at Pentecost helps us to understand some of what Paul is saying to the Roman church in chapter 8. That's page 944 in the Pew Bible. And we're going to read from verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so, Paul in this section starts to deal with suffering, and he begins to talk about creation, about the natural world, and how the natural world is suffering. Because the world as we see it today is not the world as God created it. This is a world that has been subjected to futility. That is Paul's way of saying this is a world that has been marked by the fall. It's been marked by a deviation from the plan that God had from it. It's been, it's been corrupted by sin. And then Paul goes on to say not just the natural world that is suffering, that is corrupted, but we ourselves in our own bodies feel that reality. Those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. Now, I have to be honest and say that that is not something that I feel very keenly in my life at the moment. I get out of bed in the morning, I put my feet on the floor, and not for a second do I ever hesitate to think that my legs will give way from under me. Someone throws something and I can catch it without a second thought. And I could probably wax lyrical to you about the, the intricacies of the human body, about the, the, the microscopic detail in the cell and how incredible it is and how your joints flow in an almost frictionless way. But the reality is, for many of you, that is not your experience. That as you sit and listen to me wax lyrical about the cell and its detail, something has gone wrong in your own body. That cell in all of its magnificence has become a cancer. Those joints that should be flowing freely and easily have become racked with arthritis. And many of us here this evening are all too aware of what Paul is saying. Many of you would say a hearty amen when Paul talks about groaning inwardly and waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Because that is the reality of this world. Unfortunately, it is not that Jesus wants you healthy and wealthy and that nothing will go wrong in this life. At some stage, we will all suffer the body failing and folding from under us. Some of us will get cancer, and it won't go away. Some of us will be racked with the chronic pain of arthritis that will not leave us. For some people, the black clouds of depression will always be there on a distant horizon. Through no fault of their own, they will fight that battle their whole life long. And Paul doesn't shy away from that. Paul takes that head on here and says, even us who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. It's true for us as Christians who have the Spirit in our lives as it is for anybody. And yet, did you see that Paul used the idea of first fruits as he talks about it? 
And so again, we're thinking, well, if we have the first fruits now, if the, the, the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives guiding us, maturing us, strengthening us, that each Christian feels and knows, Paul says his Spirit bears witness with our spirit, we know that the Spirit is alive and active in us. And so if that is the first fruits for us in this hardship, there must be a Pentecost. There must be something on the horizon There must be a greater fulfillment or fullness that we need to be looking to. And Paul tells us exactly what that is. He says, we are waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we are already as Christians adopted as God's children. Paul says that in verse 15 of this chapter. So, we are adopted as God's children. But there is a fullness to the realization of that that we haven't experienced yet that we won't experience until we have the redemption of our bodies. And Paul picks up the same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he talks about our bodies as tents. And he says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee." Paul's point there is is not that as Christians, we don't look to a point when we'll get rid of the body and that'll be it and we'll be free to live as a spirit. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we will be further clothed. What is now a tent, we're told, is going to be a building. And so, this is an application here for those of you who are struggling with ill health or fatigue or physical infirmity very directly. The message of first fruits is that there's a Pentecost on the horizon. Paul says, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so that is for you. We wait for it with patience because Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Someday we will be clothed in a body like the Lord's a resurrection body that is as real and as tangible as the one that we are in now, but without the frailties and failures and infirmities of it. Arms will lift, legs will run, mouths will speak and sing praises. That is the future that awaits us, and we wait it eagerly, many of us, looking to that Pentecost, looking to that promised fulfillment with an eagerness, knowing that the sufferings of this present time in hindsight, won't even be worth comparing to what is waiting for us in heaven. And it's a reminder to all of us as Christians that we we live our lives in this period between what is already and what is not yet for us. We are already saved. We're not yet in heaven. We're already perfect, and yet we're not free from the remnants of sin in our lives. We're already God's children, And yet, we're not standing before Him enjoying the full reality of that. Paul reminds us in the New Testament that we have the Holy Spirit as a first fruits, 
a reminder of the certainty of what is to come. He talks about it again in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. First fruits is here, but Pentecost is coming. And as we close, perhaps that's a new idea for you if you're not a Christian. Perhaps you've come in and sitting amongst us this evening, and that's strange, but perhaps you're most challenged by the idea that heaven and the future for a Christian isn't just some sort of disembodied spirit floating on a cloud, that it's something real and tangible. Because that is the message of the gospel. That is when the Lord says, Behold, I am making all things new. A new heaven, a new earth. He is bringing everything back to how He would have it. And for you this evening, that begins with your relationship with Him. That begins with how you see yourself in front of God. Back to 1 Corinthians when Paul's talking about Christ being raised from the dead and how hopeless and empty our lives would be if that was the case. How utterly empty and futile all of this would be for us if the Lord had not been raised from the dead. But he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. And so the question for you this evening is, do you belong to Christ? Is that how you identify yourself in this world, as someone who belongs to the Lord Jesus? Praise God for those of us who do. Praise God for the promise of Pentecost. Praise God for the hope that we have in a risen Savior. Amen. My thanks to Nick for giving us a very insightful and challenging view of this feast of Pentecost, and we really trust that the Holy Spirit will help us all to apply it to each of our hearts. Next Sunday night, we'll be taking a look at the Feast of Trumpets, and we really hope that you'll be able to join us then. Can I encourage you, if you haven't already picked up one of these leaflets on the feasts, uh, do pick one up. There are some copies in the foyer, and uh, can I also remind you that there's tea and coffee in the coffee lounge if you would like to stay behind for a while tonight. I'm sure if you would like to speak to Nick about anything that he said tonight, he would, he would be more than happy to speak to you. He'll be here for a while. But before we finish, we're going to take time to sing a closing hymn that's going to help us to reflect and respond to some of the things that we've been thinking about tonight. And that hymn is Breathe on Me, Breath of God. We'll stand after the introduction, and then Nick will close for us in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps his promise. We thank you that we can rest with absolute assurance on that. Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture and how they speak so directly into our lives. And pray that you would comfort those of us who need comforting this evening with a tangible and substantial reality, not with vague hopes or dreams, but with a sure and certain hope. 
Father, we thank you for the lessons that you have taught us in this life and continue to. And we submit everything to you in your name. Amen.